Welcome back everyone to Palm Crit 101. No, I am actually not Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist. I am Dr. Grant. I'm a second year internal medicine resident and I have the pleasure today of taking over the Palm Crit 101 podcast. I know Dr. J has been hinting at a special guest being on today's episode and I can finally reveal that that special guest is Dr. J herself. So welcome Dr. J to the Palm Crit 101 podcast. Thank you, Dr. Grant, for having me. I was especially excited to host this podcast because I'm sure that it's on everyone's minds, who is the real Dr. <laughs> J? So I thought we could explore your interest in palm crit and your experience and go from there. So, Dr. J, what made you go into palm crit? So it's actually funny. Um, for those of you who know me and have worked with me, you'll know that palm crit kind of runs in my family. Uh, my father is also a pulmonary critical care physician. And I actually remember one of the first times that I recognized that he was on the phone with someone from the hospital, I remember hearing the word Lasix. I'm pretty sure the first time I heard the word Lasix was probably when I was like seven years old. Um, no, hearing the word Lasix is not what made me go into Palm Crit. I kind of fell into it. Um, I liked being in internal medicine. I liked kind of managing everything. But what I really liked about ICU is that you get to control everything and you're kind of like a super internist. Um, people will laugh because I actually, on my very first day uh, of IC rotation as a resident, I went in to see my patient and he managed to code on me and the aspiring intensivist that I was, I actually walked out of the room because I was terrified and had no idea what to do. <laughs> so I definitely faltered. Um, early on if that, you know, was this really the field for me? But as I went on in my rotations, I realized that I really liked being able to manage um, my patients, co complex, critically ill patients, get to do procedures and just kind of be in charge of, of my patient's care. That's awesome. So, you know, now that you're there, now that you're a home credit attending, tell us kind of a few things that you like about the field and a few things that you absolutely hate. Okay, so a few things that I like, I mean, obviously I like the field, otherwise I would be miserable every day, um, but a few things that I definitely like and I enjoy doing um, as an intensivist, one, of course, procedures, and as you know, Dr. Grant, I am a bronchoscopy fiend, um, and that goes more with the pulmonary side of things, but I just, I love any sort of bronchoscopic procedure, whether it's a simple airway exam all the way to using the cryoprobe. And those of you guys who've listened to previous episodes, you know how much fun that is and all the crazy things I've pulled out of people's lungs using that cryoprobe. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, I just, I really like being able to manage complex patients, having a look at every organ system and uh, knowing that, you know, I have to keep an eye on everything. It, it requires a meticulous hand, someone who's detailed and, and those are traits that I have. Um, so things that I dislike, um, I mean, if I had it my way, I'd probably make everyone into an intensivist and Dr. Grant, you know this very well. Um, but I will say, I think the biggest thing that bothers me about being a pulmonary critical care physician, from the ICU standpoint, a lot of your patients don't do well. A lot of it is palliation, changing code status, and watching your patients die in front of you. Like it's, it's a lot of work for very little return. Um, so you have to be prepared. And, and then the patients who do do well, I mean, it's, it's very gratifying, you feel great, but 
there's a lot more death than I think anyone anticipates um, before they start in critical care. From the pulmonary standpoint, I will say it is very common that when someone comes into the hospital short of breath, that uh, pulmonary cardiology and nephrology probably all get consulted <laughs> all at once. And a lot of times it ends up not being a pulmonary problem. I mean, I'm not going to say no to the consult, but it, it, it can get a little uh, frustrating at times. But uh, really, I, I, I really overall enjoy what I do. So I think those would probably be the biggest things that I dislike. To kind of go off of a, a point you made there um, about the things that you dislike about critical care, the patients not doing well and just seeing death and seeing a lot of sickness. How do you do? You, how do you feel like you've coped with that since being in Palmer? That is a really good question, and I think an important question, especially with burnout and mental health, and, and after have every one of us having dealt with COVID in different ways. Um, I, I particularly don't have any personal, uh, or I should say specific way that I've dealt with it. One thing I do, and I think people who know me, like you, Dr. Grant, you know this, I like to talk about the cases after I dealt with them. And I think that subconsciously helps me work through it and kind of helps me deal with the guilt, you might say, um, I'll never forget my very first patient that I lost after a code. I was a second year resident and uh, we covered the ICU alone at night. And I had this patient, I don't remember the details. He was um, like a respiratory failure, not yet intubated and he coded. And um, at our training institution, we, the, our, the respiratory therapist had the ability to intubate at nighttime if it, you know, it was, warranted. And so they intubated the patient. I thought I had gotten ROSC and next thing I knew he coded again. And it was two in the morning. I remember calling the patient's son and, and telling him, and, uh, I still beat myself up, up over it every so often because I never fig could figure out why that person coded. So I, for me, I think the best way to deal with these cases you know, with death and all of that is have that support system, talk it out, understand that the patient died, but it wasn't because of you. Everything you were doing was to try to help that patient. I know I've told you this, Dr. Grant, one thing that always has bothered me, you know, is someone will do poorly and they'll pass away and you'll, you'll go to tell the family and they'll tell you, thank you, thank you for everything that you did. And that's something that's really hard for me to um, handle because at, in that moment you don't feel like you did anything because they, the patient didn't make it. But that's where you really have to be strict with yourself and remind yourself that um, what you did was to try to help the patient. It, you know, you you should be thanked. As doctors, we often have a very hard time taking compliments, yeah. um, but you should be thanked. You did all the right things, and, and sometimes people are just too sick. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, a nice little segue then into when you were in fellowship, that kind of was the start of lovely COVID. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what your experiences were like with the pandemic. Right. So, yeah, so I, I will never forget. So COVID, COVID, I think 
so I, I trained up um, in the Detroit area for fellowship and COVID hit us in, I believe it was the end of February, beginning of March, 2020. And I'll never forget, actually, if you go back a few months prior, in November of 2019, I was at the airport um, waiting for my flight to go see my brother in California. I was with my family. And I, at the Detroit Metro Airport, as I'm sure at other airports, they have those big uh, TV screens with CNN or whatever playing. And I remember CNN was on and we were waiting for to board our plane. And I remember them saying on the on the ticker tape on the where the headlines were that there was a virus that was spreading in Wuhan, and I I still remember thinking, like reading it and thinking mm, there's something there, but you know like SARS and all those other viruses that oh it'll be contained no big deal, and then come the end of February, I am on my IC rotation as a second year fellow, I'm doing nights. And uh, we we get a patient. I remember we had one patient who ended up being, you know, by now everyone knew that COVID existed and it was something. We, we didn't know how bad it was. The testing obviously was still very slow. Um, we, got a, we got a patient and she actually was uh, one of the uh, patients that had been evacuated from China. So we had her in the negative pressure room. This was the time when we had masks, like, you know, like it was, they were, they were everywhere. You could throw a mask out and not think anything of it. Um, and we treated her. She actually did okay. And when her COVID test result finally came back, that it was negative, it was this big to do. Um, the head of our ER who kind of was working with the health department about all this, he came to the unit and everyone found out and the patient asked me, oh, can I give you a hug? And, you know, I said no at the time. <laughs> um, so it was, so, so that was the last patient that I remember that, you know, things were, it, it was like the calm before the storm. So then I was off that weekend. And when I came back, I kid you not, I walked into the unit and I told other people this, it was eerie. There was this sense of like, it was very quiet in the unit. And you know, I don't use the Q word lightly. Never. Uh, right. It was very quiet and there was this sense of frenzy. You know, people weren't really talking. People weren't really um, excited about anything, but everyone was just on edge. You could tell. And what we, so what had happened was that literally over the course of 48 hours, our whole ICU, which probably amounts to close to 40 beds, was filled with COVID patients. And we had put all of our IV pumps outside the room so the nurses wouldn't have to keep exposing themselves. We had started to run out of our masks. Everyone was hoarding N95s. Um, and it just got worse from there. Uh, I got to, I still remember, I have vague memories of, as fellows, we carried the spectrophones of being called every, like a few times an hour saying that this person went into respiratory failure. Um, what do you want us to do? And I remember just saying, you know, it used to be you would go evaluate them, make the decision. I would just say, intubate them, intubate them because we couldn't use BiPAP at the time. Everyone was worried about aerosolizing uh, the virus. Heated high flow was becoming more popular, but you, you only had enough heated high flow. I mean, at some point you just had to go and intubate. We didn't even have time to go up and see the patient. We were just saying, go ahead and intubate. Um, because all the surgeries were canceled, the CRNAs, thank God, were helping us out. So they would go to the floors and intubate for us. 
um, some of the other fellows in the other specialties stopped doing their job, their specialty, and actually moonlighted as hospitalists to help with the uh, the load. Um, uh, it, it was just insane, and I I will never ever forget this. I still remember. So we went to the OR because we had to put, we had so many patients. We had filled up our full ICU with vents. We had filled up the trauma bays in the ER with vents. They were holding in the hallways. We had to go to the OR to learn how to use the anesthesia vents. And we put about six to eight patients back there. We filled up the cath lab with vents. And I will never ever forget sitting down in my ICU attending. And we literally were going down the list, trying to figure out which two patients could be on the ventilator together because we were literally running out of resources. Um, it was it was just insane. And then, you know, at some point, of course, things quote unquote calmed down a little bit. Um, and then when I came here uh, to where I currently am as an attending, I mean, resources, as you know, Dr. Grant, I think we've been okay with resources, but. Over here, the shift I noted was the families, um, and I'm sure you had this experience too. Um, the fa- so the families when uh, when I was in where I in the Detroit area for fellowship, that was just heartbreaking at the time because you know everyone was in the thick of it, everyone was kind of supporting everyone, and so families were. Um, supportive of what we were doing for our patients. Uh, they, they were literally husband and wives dying next to each other and, and the families couldn't visit. We were having them FaceTime. And then when I came down to where I am as an attending, you know, now the vaccines come out, there's all this politicization about it. And as I know you've experienced Dr. Grant down here, some families just, they became such a barrier to care. And so that was a whole other side of the pandemic. I will tell you after having dealt with COVID, and I've said this to people before, I'm not afraid of anything. Yeah. And and I'm sure you guys as residents have also experienced this. You know, before COVID, the year and a half of fellowship that I had, you know, someone would be desatting or, you know, not doing well on the floor. Okay, you get a little nervous. Okay, what are my options? Once COVID happened, I mean, you could throw anything in front of me. And it, it wouldn't phase me. I'll, I'll give you an example. And we'll actually talk about this on a podcast episode later on. But after kind of the first COVID surge, you know, th- and things calmed down, um, I ha- remember I had a lady come, I admitted her to the unit for a, a for hemoptysis. She was a laryngectomy patient. And uh, she, we all thought she had an innominate artery bleed. And for those of you who have ever been in that situation, I mean, I'll be blunt here. That makes you pucker real bad. That didn't phase any of us because we, I mean, after you've gone through COVID, it it can't get any worse than that. People arresting, people need to be prone, people need to be intubated, and you only have two, you know, one pair of hands to do everything. So COVID was crazy. Obviously, I never want to go through that again. And I know none of us ever want to go through that again. But you know, it, it definitely in, in some ways helped me grow as a as a pulmonary critical care physician. I, I hope we never, ever have to go through that uh, degree of the pandemic ever again. Yeah, I mean, that's just a whole new, interesting 
you know, dynamic thrown into the mix of pulmonary critical care. So absolutely, that's just very, very interesting to hear your experience, especially as a fellow, then into an attending, mm-hmm. which kind of gets to the next question that I have for you. And that is, what has it been like transitioning from the fellow life to the attending life? Oh boy. <laughs> so it's funny that you ask this because, so, so you go through medicine residency, right? When you start a fellowship, technically you are an internal medicine attending because you're you're boarded, you're, you know, you've completed your medicine residency. And I remember when I started as a first year fellow, I kind of was like, this doesn't really feel any any different than what I was doing as a third year resident. But as you move along, you realize that as a fellow, you have to think a little differently, look at things in, at a different angle than you were as a resident, take more responsibility. And that applies even more as an attending. I mean, as an attending, it's, I still, I still have a picture on my phone, the first patients that I took care of as an attending when I started my job here. And I, I took a picture of it because it's kind of like, you know, this is what you were working towards. This was kind of what you were imagining that you are the attending, you know, when you're rounding as a resident, a fellow, you're like, man, well, let's see what the attending has to say. Let's see what Dr. <laughs> So-and-so says. I, I don't know if I really agree with him or her, but you know, they're the attending, you know, and now you're that person. So that kind of hits you on day one and being an attending is, it's scary. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, the responsibility that you thought you had as an intern and that you thought you had as a senior resident and as a fellow, it's nothing compared to what you have as an attending. And I don't say that to, to scare anyone else or to deter you from moving forward with your career, but it's, it's different. I still remember as a resident, a fellow, we would joke about like, oh, that attending, they're consulting everyone. Like, don't they know how to manage the patient? But I have done that myself. And it's because you are the one in charge. This is cliche, but the buck stops with you as the attending, right? And you have to make sure, I mean, for example, we have a patient right now in the unit that I know you're aware of. I have literally, I've consulted cardiology, CT surgery, infectious disease, and neurosurgery, but with good reason, not just because of a liability uh, viewpoint, but also because that's what that patient needs. So, so as an attending, you become very kind of hyper aware of all these sorts of things. Um, all the consults that may need to be placed, the social work stuff, the buck stops with you there. Um, you start really thinking about the cost of things, you know, the labs, the testing, talking with families, you know, when you're a resident a fellow, you can get away with, well, this is what I think is going on, Mrs. So-and-so, but my attending is going to come to give you the final plan. And then when th- there's a meme that goes around, which I, I've showed you guys before, that it's a little picture of a kitten that's when you look for the attendee you're attending and you realize that's you and that's that's what happens. But it's, it's scary at first, but I think as you kind of go back and rely on your training and rely on all the skills that, that you've developed, you know, I'm, I'm almost a year and a half into being an attending and I've, I feel, you know, more comfortable and more confident as an attending. And I think that just grows with time. It's, it's like when you start anything new, there's always a learning curve. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting transition. I hope I've been a good attending to you guys. Of course. (laughs) So you kind of touched on some of maybe the more difficult or some of your least favorite parts about being an attending. What has been one of your favorite parts about being an attending? 
That's a really good question. Um, I think other than the fact that, you know, I kind of reached that goal, that, you know, life goal of mine that, uh, you know, this is where I want to be. I really, and, and you know this, Dr. I, I like to be in charge of my patients and their care, and I, I do like to kind of be in control of things. But um, one thing that I really do enjoy is being an attending. Probably one of the things I enjoy the most is teaching. And I mean, I'd always enjoyed it, but I never thought I would like it as much as I do. And what I love so much about teaching you guys and having the multidisciplinary rounds that we have is that don't ever let an attending ever tell you that they know everything because no one knows everything. And I learn so much from you guys on a daily basis that it just, it helps keep me up to date. And I think that then is a trickle effect, uh, trickle down effect where then our patients get better care. So I really, I really, really love teaching you guys. I think that's one of the things I like love the most about being an attending. That's awesome. We love, we love having you as our attending <laughs> and we love having an attending that loves teaching and, and loves working with us. So that's awesome. Um, my last question, I'm sure everyone has been wondering, I'm sure everyone has been dying to know <laughs> is where did you get the idea and why did you start Home Crit 101? So, um, as the people who know me well, they know that I am a little social media obsessed. Um, I'm working very hard on this habit. So back when I had to take pulmonary boards, I was having a little difficult time kicking my Instagram habit. So I came up with this novel idea. It's not really novel, others have done this. But for me, I thought that, you know, I could combine my love for Instagram with, you know, learning and education. And like I've said earlier, how much I love teaching, I thought, you know, if I can share you know, I'll go over topics and concepts and if I can share them with others and it makes sense and they understand what I'm imparting, that means that I've gotten a good um, control on that topic and a, and a good understanding of that topic. And so I used it as a way to help me study for boards and then to keep myself up to date because I know that if I'm going to talk to someone else about something, whether it's over the internet or in person, I'm going to triple, quadruple check to make sure all my information is right. So. Um, yeah, so that's how it started. And then it kind of, it kind of just exploded. Um, I did not expect it to have as many, as much interest as it has developed. And I'm really grateful for that. I think it's great, the uh, medical education community that we have online. And I love sharing cool x-rays and, you know, strange findings. And then the podcast kind of came out of that in the sense that you know, some people are auditory learners, some people are visual learners. So I thought this would just be another way to kind of, again, share interesting topics and cool cases. And, and yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of our residents and students um, follow and listen to your podcast and the Instagram page. So it's definitely been beneficial for us for our That's learning. That's great. So... Thank you everyone um, for listening and we hope that this was a fun episode for you all. Thank you, Dr. J for having me. Um, everyone make sure to tune in next week when um, Dr. J will talk about another wild case. Remember you can follow her on her Instagram at pulmcrit101 and email any questions to pulmcrit101 at gmail.com.